Hi, my name is Yuba Ramani, Project Director for GGC, and I'm watching Teen World Podcast. Um, welcome to the podcast. Sup? Yeah. Hello. Hi. So three people in the news section this time. The first in eight years of the podcast. The reason we actually this is no, no, we never had three people oh. in the news section. Anyway, the reason is that HJ is back, and mm -hmm. I asked Dennis to participate today before I spoke to HJ, <laughs> and he jumped in actually so this is why we yep. have three people and in a minute um i will be talking to the floppy fever um book guys floppy disk fever floppy disk fever from yes. the floppy total yes project i have and actually right i will be talking uh, me too and um i will be talking to uh, lydia neek and thomas about it in a minute Uh, but before that, we have some news, as always. Mm -hmm. um, today with AJ, as I just said, me and, and Dennis Carmani, our dear remute. Um, Hello. Hello again. Hello again. <laughs> Hello people, again. Three people at once. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Amazing. We have a lot of news impact for you. Yes. Actually, yes, yeah. indeed. So, number one news piece would be that on the 18th of October... For a limited time on Steam and other places, The Sims 4 will be available for free. Oh. Amazing. So, grab it on the 18th from your favorite pl uh, platform, which would be the EA app, Origin for Mac, mm -hmm. Steam, PlayStation 5, PlayStation 4, Xbo uh, Xbox Series X or S, or... The Xbox One. Man, and I just, uh, just just like a month ago, I got, I think I got that. I bought that off of the, the Origin. Well, thing. if you did, if you did, then you will getting, then you will getting some specials for free okay. as a compensation. <laughs> I hope so, yeah, because that, that kind of sucks if I paid full price. You're too quick. Well, you could have asked yeah. me because this was set in the German media already a month ago that hmm. this is going to happen, so... Never mind. Anyway, the other thing is that um, the Kickstarter point-and-click adventure, unusual finding that actually failed the Kickstarter, if I remember correctly, is going to be released anyway, and it's going to be released on the October 12th. Okay. So this is nice. I'm not so sure... Anyhow, if it was really a failed Kickstarter, but I think I saw it on Kickstarter first. Um, so anyway, release date is in uh, well, in two days from now. Okay. Cool, the cool. other news is surprisingly, EA announced a new Need for Speed called Unbound. It's going to be released on the second of December, twenty twenty-two. And it can already be pre-ordered. And the thing is, from what I saw in the trailer and some previews in the German press, it's actually with a comic style. So not like the uh, Need for Speeds before. Mm. So it's a, a, new, a new graphic style. It looks very interesting. 
I saw that. I think it's an anime anime style, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, wow. Yeah, yeah. I saw that. It's pretty. It's a pretty interesting decision because Need for Speed wasn't uh, uh, known as an as an Japanese series at all. Yeah, Japanese it was. It was pretty different. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Well, they are going back to uh, Criterion Games as a developer since uh, Ghost Games was uh, shut down a few years back. So that means they are going back to the old developer um, mm. of of the Need for Speed series, which at least the German press says is a welcome change back to the roots. Um, but even the, actually, the original Need for Speed, the first the first couple of ones, they were they were pretty realistic for the time. Like they weren't like cartoony or anything. You know, I remember. Um, right. Need for Speed 2, my brother and I used to play that all the time, and it was very, looking back at it now, it's, you know, it's very pixelated in PlayStation 1, but at the time, it was like, that was hyper-realistic. But it's interesting that you, that you picked the second Need for Speed, because that is the game that, Hot Pursuit. from 94, no, 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 Hot Pursuit was not the second one. The second one, I believe, was just called Need for Speed 2. Indeed. Um, yeah. yeah. Really? I know that. I know that because they released a special version of Need for Speed 2 just for 3DFX voodoo cards. <laughs> and um, I actually bought it last year and I even got it working in Windows 11. Wow. Which was which was pretty nice for me. Okay, and this I, this says that Need for Speed Hot, Hot Pursuit is a 2010 game, but that can't be right because I played that on on PlayStation One years before that. Yeah, but but you are mistaken there because Hot, Hot Pursuit is indeed um, one of the later games, and Need for Speed Two, as I said, was the lowest ever rated Need for Speed game. Um, so I remember that pretty well, and that is also why it was the only Need for Speed game in the series that I totally skipped. I I never I never bought it when it came out. Um, oh, Need for Speed Three was Hot Pursuit. I'm sorry. There we go. That's what I oh, played. No problem. No problem. That is why we research to dig yes. into stuff. That was from anyway, 1998. Anyway, we from Scene World we had actually an interview. Um, with Ghost Games back then um, about Need for Speed when we were at Gamescom 2017 and we were invited in the um, business area of EA with um, William Ho, one of the designers from Ghost Games, and that was Need for Speed Payback. Hmm. And here's the interesting thing that um, Need for Speed Payback, we got this interview because um, nobody else was interested in that time in Need for Speed. So there was a, a pit in interest at that time. And everybody from, from, the, from the press in, at, at Gamescom were only focused on, on, on uh, FIFA. Mm -hmm. So now it's, it's good to see a new Need for Speed where the focus is more Need for Speed than on the latest FIFA Soccer. Mm. But that is actually because FIFA Soccer, the last one, also, um, like with uh, eFootball from Konami, they were 
having a shit show because of bugs and being horrible and stuff. So now the press focuses more on on Need for Speed this year. So it's totally interesting what's happening in in the game industry right now. I actually wrote that to Dennis um, yesterday on WhatsApp. That's now 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 there are total different um, different things happening. And mm. actually yesterday, um, Adam um, Adam Betty. Yes, the I remember general him. brand, the general brand manager of Konami, wrote from his personal Twitter account that the latest update makes eFootball from Konami amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah. Okay. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> If 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 a brand manager uh, really writes that from his personal Twitter account, it must be pretty important. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, we will link to all that, of course. Um, so, yeah. Hmm. Well, that would be that would be my news actually. Okay. Okay. Uh, want me to throw in mine real quick? Sure. Um, so the mine is real quick. It's 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 the second run of the Ataski compo, and that, that would be the um, Atari ASCII. You know, you know, uh, you got Petski for the sixty four mm-hmm. and one twenty eight, and Atari has its own version of of ASCII and ASCII graphics, and they're having a competition um, for you know people to show off their their Ataski art skills. Um, it the, it's running through October first through October fifteenth. So if you want to get in an entry, um, I I get moving because by the time of release, that's going to be right around the corner. And uh, um, you can check that out. It's uh, uh, oh, there it is actually. What you said right around the corner. Yes, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> we'll have to, yeah. Super lame show. We'll have to we'll 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 have to add in like 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 the website just like creeping around the corner there behind you, creeping around the video game. Um, but you can check it out. It's a uh, uh, logiker. That's l o g i k e r dot com slash ataski, and that's just like it sounds. A t a s c i i. Sounds pretty cool. Yes. And now the big news. Yeah. Dennis! I just have some self-promotion, but <laughs> I hope you like it anyway. Um, I just started pre-order for my new Sega Dreamcast album, Generations. Mm-hmm. Um, I've made it in cooperation with um, a guy called Duranik. He made a pretty famous shooter called uh, Sturmwind for the Dreamcast. Mm-hmm. And we worked together on this album. He made the visuals. Uh, visuals are pretty, um, yeah, pretty Stanley Kubrick-like, like in 2001, probably a little bit in the fi- as in the final scene. So you know the score. And um, yeah, I just started pre-order on Bandcamp, and it will ship in on November the 11th. It will ship, and it's in production now. The CDs already, and yeah, you get also two balloons for no reason. Oh, balloons are cool. cool. Nice. So, um, yeah, two balloons are included in the diggy pack and um, do what you want with them. Enjoy. 
now I got now I got now I got to get a Sega Saturn because because I've you know the last two Dreamcast Dreamcast Dreamcast, sorry yes Dreamcast yeah because the last two albums I got you know I I got from you were the uh, the the Zip Drive album (laughs) which which I I pulled out my old uh, my old uh, Power Mac G4 to run it on amazing yeah Yeah. and then and then the Game Boy one which which was mind blowing because that thing. You know, it's like yeah. you know the little sure. Game Boy DS or or whatever it is, the little you know, yeah. or, or Game Boy yeah, Advance. Think, I'm sorry. Dreamcast, Dreamcast is already still um, still quite cheap on eBay. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they pro- break down often. Yeah, wow. they break down often. That's that's a problem. But uh, compared to other retro consoles, I think um, it's pretty cheap on, on mm. eBay and um, and also pretty easy to mod. I think. You can, uh, you can basically mod a Dreamcast. Um, I remember I modded my Dreamcast back in the day with um, what is it called in English? Streichholz, Streichholz. Match. With a match, yeah, with a match. I included a match in the in somewhere in the hole of the drive, and this was a pretty primitive mod back in the days hmm. that would skip some uh, copy copy protection. <laughs> actually, actually, you don't need a mod. You can simply do it with some special settings in Nero. Yeah, 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 yeah. But and you can even I use normal CDs. I, yeah. I, I know it because my my Dreamcast came with with a bunch of um um backup. Really? Games. I see, yeah. 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 Hmm. yeah, yeah. And and the and my Dreamcast isn't modified or something. I okay. see, okay. But I still remember this kind of primitive mod that I did for the Dreamcast. Yeah. Well well um, um C D and D V D and Blu ray writers improved, so did yeah, um, did Nero and some other burning programs, so you yeah. could just make some special settings. I still remember doing yeah, stuff yeah. with the original PlayStation because it wouldn't, you couldn't play, you know, Burns uh, DVDs on that. Yeah, but here's the difference that the PlayStation used black CDRs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that were done by Sony. That's there's yeah. a difference, and um, with this Dreamcast, Sega didn't do that. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Either yeah. way, there w- it was a pretty simple mod to change the PlayStation. I remember I I had a friend that had the had the chip and he stuck it in there and suddenly I could play copied games. Yeah, but anyway, my PlayStation Two isn't modified because even to this day, PlayStation games are so cheap. I'm talking There's PlayStation no... One. Yeah, uh, still, still, even PlayStation One or PlayStation Two, it's just not worth to do that because. Mm-hmm. The games you can get them for oh, yeah. at least here in Germany oh, for five Lord, yeah. euros, ten euros, indeed, or something. Indeed, indeed. And, yeah. uh, but I think I think the PlayStation One might be the next retro thing. Like mm-hmm. um, maybe not the PlayStation Two. The games are pretty cheap, as you said, Jörg. But I think the PlayStation One games are getting more expensive day by day now, mm. and yeah. um, especially when you have them complete with manual and with the. Mm. Yeah, well, I already got the ones I wanted. So well, they've already yeah. released the uh, the PlayStation Mini, like the original PlayStation Mini. So you know, it's it's mm. it's hit that 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 retro console level where they're putting out like the yeah. mini version. Well, but the problem the problem with the PlayStation Mini is, um, it failed so much. Yes, that 
when when I asked the PR person responsible for Sony Germany, I was told they declined any invite mm. for interviews. <laughs> literally. Yeah. yeah, they were ashamed of their own product in the end. And that is why there's no interview with Sony about the PlayStation Mini. Yeah. I know it because I got this info firsthand. Wow. Yep. Well, that's that's the way it is. Yeah. Um, anyway, anyway, you forgot the most important info, and that is you told me. I don't know if it's a secret, but it's an unlimited album release. Yeah, this time, this time, but it's not limited because it's on uh, CD, and uh, so I don't think it will be sold out anytime soon because it's easy to reproduce and um, it. I think it will be available for a long time. Hmm. Maybe not with the balloons and the diggy pack, but um, I think um, the thing itself would be available for a long time. Or you must you must insist there will be more orders from female buyers, and then the balloon problem will be fixed by itself. <laughs> yeah. What? I think, I think, I think the, the, balloon, the balloons will be uh, will be limited because. Um, there should be some special thing for the early birds. And, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So you enjoy the balloons. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you don't have your own. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Whoa! I'm I'm really on this lame joke thing yeah. today. Yeah, you're um, going full dad joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that even. Okay. Well. So let's jump to the Netherlands. And I, I don't think I can jump that far. Ooh, okay. I'll have to sit this one out. You have to okay. swim. Swim to the yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, you guys start the interview, and by the time that that I I, I managed to swim to the Netherlands. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll jo- yeah, I'll, I'll get there. It was only me, so only one guy. That's, that's the joke. That's the joke. Ooh. Is that I'm swim? I'll be swimming while you'll be doing the interview. The, the the jokes you have to explain to the audience are the best jokes. Yeah, well, that's that's pretty much every joke we've done this this intro. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, and there cool. will be more. Yeah. yeah, because the maximum amount an RSS feed can handle for a podcast episodes actually four thousand, so we still have a little space left for new episodes. Mm-hmm. At least four thousand new jokes. Well, the, at least three thousand some new jokes. There's another limit for five hundred kilobytes of RSS file uh, size. So, whatever comes first, <laughs> you're, just, um, you're just playing right into it. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Yes. So, to the Netherlands. Enjoy the interview. Bye bye. Bye. Today. We are talking, I'm talking with three guests, and today it's actually a research group that interviewed us a year ago, us means AJ and me, about our Scene World DiscMag project. So we welcome Vyra, Lydia, Nick Hillman, and Thomas Kalsberg Valskar. I probably pronounced all the names. Yeah. Wrongly, because I neither know Dutch, Norwegian, nor 
Portuguese name pronunciation, but I tried my best. And so we are actually returning the favor and talking about the book and also about how you became aware of scene world. And from what I understood, that was actually Lydia's fault. And that is why you are here as a supporter of the book. So perhaps let's start with how did you all get involved in floppy disks and computers and stuff? I don't know who wants to start off you three. Maybe I should start with that one. Are you okay with that? Floppy yeah. Yes. Okay. It all started in 2014, if I'm correct. Do you know this, Thomas? I joined a bit later, so you were running it at least a year or two before yeah, I joined. It, it has been going on way back. I was doing a series of programs at a venue called WARM at Rotterdam. WARM, the Institute of Avant-Gardistic Recreation. And this was a series about different kind of media. So we had La Grande Fête du Cassette and an entire evening actually about moving panoramas. And at one point we figured we should also do a program about floppies. And I had a friend at that moment, Kaina Buko, also known as Toxic Chicken, who was part of the Yeah, I Know It Sucks group. And this was, these were people that were really into low-bit music, but also into floppy disks as a distribution medium. And the event was 2014, confirmed. So he did a floppy festival in low-bit. And I figured we should also have this here in Rotterdam. So we did the first floppy total event of which yeah, many people were part. And we should not only include musicians, but also look at floppy filmmakers, floppy workshops, floppy art, everything floppy related. See what it means to still be busy with floppies in 2014. And this kind of grew and grew. We did another edition the year after, then another one two years after. I think that was the edition that you two joined, Thomas and Lydia, in 2017. And then it was already a two-day event. After that, we tried to do one every two years. And we started talking to everybody at the festival. And we noticed that these people were all involved in the same medium with the same backstory, the same kind of thing that appealed to them also about this weird little disc. But they were not necessarily in contact with each other. They were all working in different disciplines. Because we really like to narrow down our views in a very specific tunnel, we figured what would it mean to ask all these people more or less the same questions? Like, why do you use this? What is the future of the floppy? Where is this medium heading? And see if there were any commonalities to see if anything in this era makes the floppy disk such an appealing thing. And yeah, that's why we also started making a book about this, Floppy Disk Fever. And I think this would be a good point for either Lydia or Thomas to take over, to tell a bit more about the content and the demo scene, of course, and SeaWorld. I can just start with the book. So another information. So I think I helped out on the second call 2015, and then I got the interest to join in 17, and then work on the one in 2019. And I just started helping out with Nick with posters and like just promotion and expand a bit like uh, more guests, not just the music people. And I think it was like, so after all of the events, we were okay, what can we do now? That's more than just 
an event because we started repeating. We felt like maybe we were repeating ourselves a bit. So then we decided, hey, there's not a lot of writing about this topic of the floppy disks. Or you can also look at like more media stuff. So I think that was when we started thinking about the book. And then we started thinking about who can we invite with a book, what kind of guests we can find. And then we narrowed it down to like different topics. And then we decided to do like one, one interview per topic. I cannot remember exactly on top of my head <laughs> detail what the name of the topics were, but I think it was like archiving, music, film, disc mags, and that kind of stuff. So then we like from that on, we created like a list of people we wanted to interview for the book. And I think, but on the disc scene, we already had Lydia who already had some research about it, had a presentation about disc scenes at the, I guess, 2017 edition. So we were thinking we already had done a lot of cool research and you know a lot about it. So we just say, you want to help us with this chapter of the book. Yeah. And so that's, I think, how I came across Scene World because we were looking for disc mags that were still active. And Scene World, I think, is arguably the most active. Correct me, please, Jörg, if I'm wrong, but at least the most visible. <laughs> Well, I don't know if we are the most active. We had some, we had one break in 2005 for five years and continued in 2010. But uh, when it comes to NTSC and Paul covering both scenes at once, we are actually even the only one doing that. So, yeah. Indeed. And so we thought you would be really good to interview for, for the book. So how did you actually come across? Were you looking for American disc max and then found us because Driven was no more? Or how did you actually happen to find us? Yeah, that's a very good question because I, I really don't remember how I came across you. But yeah, since I had been doing the research or I did the research in 2017 for this presentation, yeah, I came across a lot of databases of active and inactive zines. So I was really looking into the history of the disk mag. I found a lot of very well-documented websites, which had the whole history actually of disk mag projects. And I think I might've come across SceneWorld for the first time then when I was doing a timeline of disk mags, their platforms, their communities, etc. I think that might have been it. Interestingly, yeah. Nick, you, you mentioned the book. You not only cover Discmax, obviously, but also other projects that even we we came across. For example, we had an interview with, J with Jason Scott from archive.org, which you had as well. And you were like, wow, we are on the same book as archive.org. What an honor. Yeah, it's also an honor to have Jason in our book. He's a friend of the festival, I would say. Yeah. Uh, a recurring guest at the festival. Exactly. Him and Sascha Müller, the famous tech DJ from Hamburg, if I'm correct. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, they are working on floppy disks on a different level perhaps, but also both are very important, yes. And we, we have to mention, because we didn't do it yet, it's actually, if I'm not mistaken, the first book that is covering the topic on a research level, so on a scientific research level, not on a hobbyist level, that there are many books on the topic of video games, for example, but you are actually 
taking this book as a serious project? It's also a bit of a dare, of course. Eh? Like, how serious can you take something that is usually seen as the most niche thing imaginable? Mm. Usually when you talk to people and you say, yeah, we're doing something with floppy disks, they immediately start laughing, think it's a joke and asking <laughs> what kind of floppy disks are still around, etc., etc. Yeah. But we figured that it's a really good example of an, an obsolete medium that actually has a very strong presence in history also today. Hmm. Maybe not in its practical usage, but in its visibility also as a cultural icon. This is the reason that we figured it would be interesting to just go into this topic even deeper, into the deep end, down the tunnel of doom, and see what everybody, why everybody is so attracted to this medium. Because usually when people talk about old media, you either get this really media-theoretic approach to it, so it tries to pinpoint the meaning of the, me uh, the meaning of the medium. And we actually departed more from almost like a social science or an anthropologic viewpoint. We were really interested in seeing why people were doing this and actually talking to these people instead of saying, okay, the floppy disk is part of nostalgia. It's part of residual media. So we didn't want to start with an existing framework, but just start a discussion about it actually. Yeah. And you are part of a new generation of researchers. I'm 10 years older than most of you guys. You are in your 30s. And so you're actually researching something that kind of happened before some of you were even born. When it comes to the heyday of floppy disks, for example, especially the 5.25 inch disks where that actually that floppy name is coming from so it's interesting that you would actually be interested in researching something that was before you if that makes sense because normally you would think that people in their 50s old people or elderly people would start a research like that and not people who actually i don't know how much you had in, you have been in touch in your childhood with the floppy disks, especially the old 5.25 inch or even 8 inch floppy disks, probably not a lot. In my case, I would say those are before my time. I do have memories of the 3.5 inch, not exactly a half, correct me. But I would say that we actually have the best age to do a research like this. Because at one point we are old enough to actually have had some experience with it, but we are also removed enough from it to have some sort of yeah distance from it to say something about it that somebody who is too involved with the medium probably couldn't. Uh, but correct me if I'm wrong, Thomas and Lydia. I can like so, I like I remember like the floppy, uh, not the five inch. Like I remember briefly touching the five inch, but it's mostly three and a half inch floppies, and I'm even remembering. Because I had this weird project as a kid, I was making a computer magazine. I had to move my massive 500 megabyte file collection over from one computer to another computer. Only way I could do it was actually do this all 50 plus floppy carousel, like copying from one floppy, going to another computer and then go around in circle. So for me, I feel floppy disk is really close to my childhood and growing up. But I think, yeah, this, this is... When you have like people who has never experienced, they see it from a different angle. And I think a lot of the projects, not all of them, but it's a bit like 
like people want to publish music on floppy and not because it's necessarily was the music distribution format of its day but more of a hey let we want to take this and re redo it remix it call it what you want to see it from a different light and i think that's interesting not only with floppy but a lot of other kind of types of medium that kind of pops up over the years but i would say there's a text that we did that was before our book the paul black square after image of the floppy disk from Matthew Kitchenbau, who is the he's at the University of Maryland, who wrote about the, the floppy disk. So there was like the pre-floppy, floppy total, floppy disk fever. Before floppy disk fever, we read that and said there's more to be explored on this topic. I would say. Yeah, I guess in my case, yeah, the 5.5 and the 8 inch were never present in my childhood, and. I don't remember if I actually made use of the three and a half inch, but I have a very vivid memory of my dad's box of flops, floppies. So that's my childhood memory of floppy disks. I was still around. They were still around when I was around. But I think you mentioned something yeah, about us being not having at least such a close proximity because we were not there during its heyday. And it resonates with something that Laurie wrote in the introduction of the book that I thought, ah, yeah, this actually makes a lot of sense, which is about nostalgia that you feel also for a time that was not yours. And I think she also touches on this, that it's about making something tangible and that the floppy disk somehow makes it tangible when things are becoming more and more abstract when it comes to computation. Mm. So, yeah. so I thought that was really interesting. Mm. I wonder, so you joined as a supporter due to your presentation of 2017. How did, how were you made aware of Floppy Total? Did you know the two guys or did you meet them by chance or how did it actually happen? Both. I met them by chance, of course, as you always meet anyone okay. <laughs> because we, we studied at the same masters in, in mm. different years, but so we were around, we were in the same network and yeah, I was talking to Nick and talking about this project mostly and, and I was like, oh, that's fine. And I was into publishing. Yeah. So that's... Ah, okay. So you were actually studying in the Netherlands? Yes. Ah, as a foreign semester or something? No, my masters, I just came to live in the Netherlands for my masters. Ah, okay. Same with Thomas, right? Yeah. Okay. So, so, we so a master in Northern. Ah, okay, okay. So that means actually Nick is the only real Dutch guy here. Yes, I'm afraid, but I still have a German surname. Yeah. Oh, okay. Still not ah, completely. Okay, uh, because I wasn't totally in the picture. I thought it was a Dutch research group and Portuguese, but it's actually Norwegian Dutch Portuguese, right? Ah, uh, you could say this. Okay, so okay, so it's really international here, more than I thought originally. Interesting. Okay. Okay, apologize because for, for me fine. personally, I don't make I don't make a difference. I talk to everybody and not thinking about where is he or she coming from. But I wonder what was the starting process, and did you know at this time that you actually would find somebody covering the costs of the book and all this? I, probably there were some hurdles to go over, right? Yeah, you could say that the 
original festivals. They were all hosted at the same space, warm. And they also gave us the funding to, to invite everybody over because these were also mostly international artists, but this was still a pretty limited budget. So we couldn't really invite people from overseas or anything. But thankfully, there appeared to be such an enthusiastic, floppy community, music community, that they actually just paid for tickets themselves initially. We also had labels like Free Recordings with Graham Boozy, who just came over. And what was that one called again? Pioneerska Records. And this really helped. But for the research, because this took such a long time, and we also had to do the printing of the book, of course, we actually were supported by the Industries Funds in Holland. We wrote a very good letter, an application to them, telling them the importance of this research in the floppy disks as part of residual culture, digital heritage, and approaching this in different methods. And, well, it wasn't easy, but after two years of talking to them, I think we convinced them to pay for the book. And that's how it came to be. Awesome. Awesome. And how was it approaching all the people mentioned in the book? Thinking about archive.org, their first reaction must have been like, what do these guys want from us? No? Okay. Well, yeah. So I'd invited like Jason two times to, to Floppy Total before, and we kind of accidentally bumped into each other at Impact Festival in 2014 or 2015. And at that time, there was this kind of like the Norwegian GeoCities was getting taken down. So I had given some of the information knowledge I have to that. So we just start talking about that. Then we just get into contact. And then for Floppy Total, I felt it was natural for, to invite him for a talk presentation about floppy disks. And then with the book, then I just thought it's like he is like a, 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 a floppy connoisseur, connoisseur, I would say. He also have this all copying floppies on Twitch and creating a kind of new interest from people way younger than us, even about the floppies. So it's like a natural kind of progression via there. And then via him, and also we got called like the Foon. Foon was like, even Jason would say Foon was the king or the floppy maestro of Twitter. So they naturally was going to contact him. And in the process, we figure out like who to contact who does relevant projects. And then with, with Pionerska, we already had invited him, Adam Frankovic, earlier. So you look into who we know and expanding who, which topics can we not cover from the people we have access to or contact with or know in, in all kind of level. Sometimes it's like a floppydisk.com, you just send an email and see what happens. The other two also wanted to say something because it started at the same time. I think Thomas covered most of it, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, there, there was already a community. I would say that half of the book is had some sort of connection to Floppy Total before. And the other half were also handpicked because we wanted to have as many disciplines, as many topics in the book as possible. So that's also how we came across Nick Gentry for the Floppy Artworks, for instance. That was completely new because, yeah, we already knew mostly a lot of floppy musicians. But as you've seen, there's only one in the book. We tried to, to trim things down and keep mm. things diverse. And, and Lydia, is oh. there something you want to add? 
No, not really. They, they basically covered everything. And yeah, I had a more support role in the book, so I was not so much involved in this part, just mm. in the, yeah, in some parts of the process. Yeah. You mentioned musicians. Interestingly, when when we were looking for somebody doing PR for Scene World for the social media and stuff, we actually got remute. And he's actually a guy you people know. I think he told me that he actually has had been playing at one of those events, right? So he was like, oh, yes, I know this group. Totally awesome and, and stuff. And was like, wow, okay. So there was a connection without me knowing it, actually. I don't know if you were aware. But from what I understood, you actually caught the book already, but you have... I think in the end of September, you actually have a release event, right? Next week, or I don't next know when week. this podcast will... Unfortunately, not next week. I'm not so fast in oh, editing. Then it, might okay. have been, then it might have already happened. <laughs> the 16th or 17th of September at this Institute of Rotterdam, Rotterdam called the E2. Awesome. Yeah, I hope you, you managed to pin down the details with Taco, our staff member. So, yeah, yeah, we've been in contact. I think this will work out. If awesome. the AV connector will work, that's the last. But we found a nice hostel for him already. Awesome. Yes. Awesome. Yeah, this will be interesting. So I hope you will record his presentation, actually. Yeah. We're planning to, yes. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. There's one question I have about the research. I was looking, I was watching the presentation of you, Lydia, from 2017, and I found that not all the disc mags were covered completely. For example, Lodestar, you stopped at 2007, but you left out the fact that David Moorman took over the magazine from Softdisk back then to publish ah, independent. Yes, yes, okay, yeah, indeed. It's good that you tell me because indeed I there I know there are a lot of things that I'm missing, a lot of information that is even maybe outdated at this point and even at that point. It was sometimes difficult for me also to find and it was my first contact with the scene of disc mags. Yeah, thank you for letting me know that actually. Yeah, the, the problem is the problem is that that some projects, for example, Lodestar, David Moorman for some reason never managed to make an agreement of releasing all his issues on the internet as well. So mm. I, I don't know why they never found an agreement there, but he's, ne he's not really outspoken about the fact that he continued the magazine for some time until he decided to, do, to stop it for good because it wasn't bringing out any money anymore. But yes, it's sad for a reason. Because I always thought Lodestar as a whole should be preserved and not only the time from Fender Tucker. Yeah, so, so until when did he continue? Oh, that's a good question. I totally forgot. I, I just know that we had a special issue for World Western in 2003. That is... Mm. 
why I know that it actually continued after Softdisk stopped it. But there should be something, I believe, in the C64 wiki. Let me, there is a C64 wiki entry. And there it writes, okay, okay, okay. Yes. So, in January 2001, while J&F &J Publishing retained ownership of Lodestar, Dave Moorman became editor, whoop, and yeah. And let's see, officially 249 issues were published in total. Okay, so the magazine stopped officially in 2008, leaving issue 2050 unpublished, what, 250 unpublished. So I guess I will just post it here. So in the C64 wiki, you can read the whole history and all Thank this you. unpublished, um, officially published, unofficially published, it's a real mess. So I totally understand why why you didn't cover it totally. Because yeah, if it was you don't a bit know, overloading. Yeah. 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 Because if you didn't know that somebody wrote it in the C64 wiki, you wouldn't find it. And that's. I think I was around the C64 wiki. Now that you mention it, this is I've, I've, the C64 wiki was vital for my research. But like you said, it was so much information. And again, I didn't have the most time to, to do this research and I was completely new to it. So yeah, for sure, there are many things missing. Yeah, yeah, but it's not your fault. It was just completed in 2018. So actually after your presentation, so you couldn't <laughs> possibly have known. <laughs> so yeah, but you only knew if you were directly part of the CCT4 scene and the American as well. I didn't know myself. I just found it out afterwards when I was trying to download the whole Lodestar collection and I found out, wow, the issues from David Moorman are totally missing. Okay. You can only find them unofficially, not really the way you want to have them. Anyway, that, that was just a comment. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, I'm a bit, I'm a bit picky on details. That is probably That's... speaking against and for me. No, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the perception of the book. Uh, I've seen on Twitter that Jason Scott is totally amazed by it already. I think he mentioned it like 10, 11 times on his Twitter and stuff and, and even other people were totally amazed by it. So from what I saw, it's a total success. <laughs> wow, you put us on the spot there. That is why we have interview. Uh, if, we, if I think the book is lame, you wouldn't the BBC radio show for this book, so I guess that's a yes. sign of quality. Yes. We were asked to comment on the war on floppy disks in Japan that has been called out last week by BBC Berkshire, but they changed their minds like two minutes before the interview. <laughs> um, wow. So, yes, we uh, haven't quite hit the mainstream yet, yeah. but who knows? It's a, a matter no, of time. <laughs> what I can see to Twitter, Twitter 
Uh, floppy Twitter is happy about the book. I also have reached uh, the mediacology scene and the digital archiving scene. They're also pretty positive of it, so that's pretty good. There will also be a blog post, I guess, hopefully they post it tomorrow or this week from IGA, I on the sign about the book. So I think, like, if what happens, you make this project and we do all these years and all this work and hours on it, to get to the point it's not living by itself. It's, it, it's like it goes into the world and moves out with its old apartment and gets new fans and it's fun, but also like a new experience. I never told you guys, but actually, when we released the first issue of Scene World in February 2001, a week after released the issue, I received a phone call from German radio Bavarian 3. And they were like, I can't believe that you are doing a new disc mag in 2001. Why would you even do that? It's like a dead art. Nobody gives a damn anymore about disc max. Why would you do that? And especially for American Canadian users where there's no activity anymore. And then when you approached us in March 2001, I was like, wow. So finally somebody recognized us. And finally, all this effort 21 years ago has a reason and a good outcome. This is how I see it. Yes, it will. Yeah. Yeah. So what I call like the long tail, like you start on something. Exactly. And then it takes a while and then it starts living, getting wings and fly off and start living its own life. Um, by the way, I'm looking out the window because it's getting really heavy lightning, lightning here in the Netherlands. Whoa. Uh, at least in the top. We live pretty close, me and Nick really close to each other. So if I'm looking out with my eyes, it's because there's a flash in front of my window. So Yeah, no problem, no problem. Summer, no more heat wave. <laughs> yeah, I mentioned it once, especially I remember when you interviewed us for your book, Lydia, for example, was always smiling. You you really could feel how touched or how confirming what AJ and I said felt to her. Probably like you did your research and then, yes, I did it correctly or whatever. I don't know what you what your thought process was, but it's something that I noticed especially. You know, I think I was it was really nice for me to hear like firsthand accounts because I had only encountered it through reading articles and not actually talking to anyone who was involved with it directly. So it, it felt really nice to to hear. It was a really interesting process for me as well as a continuation of that research. That was more or less, if I remember correctly, what was going on, my thought process. Now that the book is officially out, what's happening next? Is there any second volume planned? Will there be a revised edition? I'm still finding error, spelling errors and typos. Okay. Uh, so it wouldn't hurt. <laughs> but no, th there are also a couple of topics that are not completely covered in the book yet that we'd still really like to get into. For instance, we feel that we have, could have gone a little bit deeper into, yeah, how would I say it, floppy gaming, whatever that exactly entails. We've touched upon that, even in our interview together, of course. But we would have really liked to talk to a developer, and this didn't happen in the end for the book. 
And there are a couple of topics like that. We haven't talked about floppy crafting, for instance. I would have really liked to have that. But yeah, maybe if we sell all the copies, we can do a revised one with some extra interviews. Yeah. If you have a list of names that only became a name on the list, we also tried because there's quite like either it's Europe or like North America. So we would also really like to get into beyond South America, Asia. We, there's been rumors about some kind of like hardcore metal floppy scene in Southeast Asia or something, but it could just be rumors. I don't know, but it's just, it's really, it's what you can search on and what, how far you can go down the rabbit hole with this. We never know what's beyond there, but it's hard to find that or get in touch with that because if you, if someone is making say floppy music, but it's not connected to any of the current kind of labels, then it becomes like an island where they do things and then maybe not aware too much with what happens in, in Canada or Hungary or Germany. There is an example that, that we discovered as scene world we didn't know before. For example, 91, 92 and a few years beyond, there were some issues of a magazine called Panda Magazine in Peru. And they actually... It was done by the Twin Eagles group. And actually, for some reason, they decided that the later issues are bilingual in Spanish and English. For whatever reason, because the scene was in Peru was more driven by a black market. So the these issues probably never saw any English speaker until the Commodore Scene database in 2002 was coming up and people actually started uploading what they have. But prior to this, I don't think anybody ever read the English content of that magazine. But for whatever reason, they decided to translate parts of the article. So perhaps that is something you can cover in your next book. Yeah. The problem here is convince people that their knowledge is important enough so they will talk to you. I don't know if that is an opinion you, that is an experience you can share or rely on, but that's at least an experience I had. But of course, a podcast is more complicated than a book because you write it down and that's it basically. Yeah, like, I think we mostly managed to, when we, I think our space was mostly we would reach out to someone. And I think like for us in situation, because we already have done the festival before and we already had some names already like ready. So that we got confirmation really early on. So I think that was easy, I would say, not totally easy that people said yes. And it was more like logistics because then somebody going to interview someone who lives in LA or then you got the time zone. So logistically, sometimes it's a bit tricky. And then the process of transcribing it and processing all of the hours of, I think transcription was probably nearly two, two thirds of the entire process. Wow. Uh, 
there's a lot of hours. So you do one interview with someone and then maybe talk on for two and a half hours. And then it's mostly maybe around 45 minutes that's maybe useful. And then you got to cut it down, edit it back and forth with editors and different people read over it and then send it to the person you interview to get confirm what we know is what's right. So you don't quote someone that said something and then it was not true because you interpreted as as yes instead of no or maybe or whatever. Yeah, but now I figure what I just told you and what I know about Peru would have probably not been interesting for you because you are focusing on active projects, still using the floppy disk, not on what has been in the past. Yeah, so. I think that was also an aim for the project to talk about what who's currently using it. And that was also a bit like this kind of this weird, like narrow knife edge of not totally talking about like the past and nostalgia, but focusing what's who's currently using it or have recently used it though. From people selling floppy disks to musicians distributing music on it and scenes and current projects like LGR who is a YouTuber talks about video games, but he also talks about he also exposing like a pretty young generation to to floppy disk. So that's also kind of part of the scene. It's like HD YouTube video and compressed audio is a spectrum uh, of this book. Yeah, I agree on that. It's the thing is, of course, that usually people consider something that is obsolete as something that belongs to the past. In reality, it usually has a sort of afterlife and this transforms the medium also into a sort of hybrid entity. So you have people making HD videos of retro content, but also projects that would have been possible 20 years ago. Even distributing floppy music on floppy disk is an anachronism because this didn't actually happen in this exact way with compression and org files back in the 90s when the floppy disks were prevalent. In that sense, you're always talking about the past, but also about the present. And it was really finding a sort of balance that, that the projects that were really also about heritage, like the things that archive.org and Jason Scott does, that this also has this active contemporary component to it and isn't just, a, how would I say it, a one-sided digital heritage program. For instance, we also talked to the Home Computing Museum in Helmond. And we didn't necessarily only want to talk about the collection of the museum, but actually about their activities there, how they preserve it, how they distribute this, how they connect to their area and the rest of the Netherlands, but also how they keep the community involved at the museum. There, there is a bit of overlap there. We, you can't talk about floppies without talking about heritage, without talking about the past, but we try to at least look at how this is activated again in contemporary time, because this for us, I think the most interesting part about it even. I think the best that could happen to the floppy disks would be if there is a revival for the medium there is for records, which are now called vinyl, or for music cassettes, but I'm not sure if that will ever be the case. Probably not. It's up to you. It's up to your generation and younger to make it happen. I could go a little bit deeper in that, but let's summarize it like this. We, we've talked to a lot of labels 
And they all have their different reasons for distributing on, on floppy disks, actually. Some want to be as obscure as possible. Some want to do it out of a sort of anti-capitalist background. So as a sort of Marxist statement. And then again, there are just people who just like it as a design object. So they see it as an artistic means. And the thing is that I think a lot of these things would lose their appeal if they would become more mainstream or more popular. Point, good point. You see the same, of course, with vinyl as well. Now that my father started recollecting records again, you have this parallel vinyl collecting that isn't necessarily about crate digging and dust and discovery anymore, but more about rekindling something that was already there, collecting the same records again. And this is the danger that nostalgia also becomes a repetition of the past without this critical or this hybrid component. But the thing is, what we also have to take into account, the advantage of records being produced again is the medium won't die out. But since the last production of floppy disks ended in 2002, which is now 20 years ago, and actually the last ones manufactured were in the Netherlands, and then they were not produced anymore, that means at some point floppy disk macs and games on floppies will die out because you can't get the medium anymore. And even if you erase them and use used disks at some point there there's not nothing to delete anymore in, without destroying some data that that can can't be found elsewhere so i think that's the other danger that the culture will die out by the lack of medium I don't know if you thought this far yet, but that's at least my perspective. Yeah. Nick, go. Oh, me? Yeah. <laughs> okay. You're like I, next, I, next to my screen. This is Nick okay. for me. And I, this is I, your, I, this is you to, I have a very important point about it. There are multiple ways about thinking about this. Huh? The, when talking about media and especially obsolete media, you always talk about something that inevitably is going to fade away, like all good things in life, I would say, but what can you do? But as you say, the, in regards to the culture dying out, I don't, I'm not too sure if this would happen immediately. For one thing, I am not completely sure if floppy disks or any medium in themselves are an absolute necessity for any kind of culture surrounding media. It's, of course, a cultural icon with a special meaning and a place in people's heart. And it also has a certain aesthetic that it provokes when you use them, both in music, but also in visuals. But there are, of course, also projects and means to emulate that or simulate or evoke that in a different way now. And actually still approaching the medium now is in a way also different than if you would have used the medium 30 years ago. Back then, you would just use whatever was available. Now you actually have to go out of your way for that. So it is already something completely different. And I don't think if you would extend this to the demo scene, for instance, that the demo scene would die out if there are no more floppies necessarily. 
I think that other opportunities would present themselves if there are no more floppies. And maybe in a worst case scenario, people could get really creative in finding a way to create a new floppy again. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you can like you can emulate software. Maybe a situation in the future you emulate the experience of the floppy. You can have like SD card emulated like floppy sleeves run. But yeah, I guess if you go online, you want to want to find floppies. Either if you go to an eBay type of site, it's either under like vintage, or if you go to realm of vintage computer life, then prices are a bit crazy. Or it's like people just don't want to get rid of stuff. So I think it's like this area where you can still find them. But yeah, it's not really, you can just go to your media mart or like a CompuCity and grab one from the shelf. But True. I still think it's, it will be possible to get floppies. The quality maybe will less and less get the new old stock. It's more like repurposed floppies. But I think maybe then... If people have the floppy releases, they're not going to overwrite them and put the new Word document on it. I think that was something we did more before we had a pack of 10 floppy disks and we could re reuse them until they died on us, either by accident or by fault of our own, like throwing behind a couch or a backpack. And then also the problem is, I can't relate to that because I don't have a record player. It was be before my time. I'm not that old. When, when I was young, the CD was already there. But a lot of people nowadays complain that new vinyls or new tapes, music tapes, are in an awful quality compared to back then. If, as the saying, if perhaps people get creative or if somebody reproduced those 5.25 or 3.5 inch floppy disks, the problem would probably be quality and durability. Yeah, what I understand with, for example, the concept of, like the issue with cassettes, it's because if you don't buy, say, an older machine that's really good, like a lot of newer, like you go to the Aldi or Lidl, you buy a, a record player, cassette player, it is mostly it's the most uh, terrible crap quality reader with this the mechanism is bad and then the tapes are probably made a bit cheaply so everyone wants the, the high quality grade tapes that are still available and you gotta sell a kidney for that at this moment um, <laughs> okay yeah. <laughs> oh yeah there's a big issue now with analog photography for example because it's become like really a boom now and now situations that people are restarting factory lines to make a film analog film rolls again before it used to be a quite a limited like at the very end of the, the vinyl before it became popular again i think it was somebody can fix can verify or say that i'm wrong but i don't think there was a lot of vinyl press brands left in europe uh, i think most of them was maybe a couple one in germany or something but recently there have been created and then when the boom came people would then find old factories, refurb the machines and start up new production lines. And now recently, they've been completely 100% new factory lines constructed from vinyl presses. If there's a demand and there's money in it, <laughs> who knows? But I don't think there's a, they will have a floppy will up there with vinyl. But you see now there's an upswing in like CDs again. And that's a kind of, the, the CD for me is what the vinyl were from other people that's way older than me, like why CDs there? <laughs> <laughs> True, good point. 
Good point. So I think it's totally awesome. And I will look forward to see the recorded version of the presentation. <laughs> yeah, that is the book. Uh, perhaps one question. How come you decided against an ebook version? Why has it been why has it been on paper? To be completely honest, how should I say this? <laughs> we weren't really even considering only an ebook. We really were like paper books. And uh, we're also not completely against it, but I don't think our publisher does ebooks even. More about this, Thomas? Let's again uh, mute for some reason. Can you hear me now? Yep. Yeah. Okay, I don't know what happened. I got muted out for some reason. No, I don't think they're really into the, the world of you know, ebooks. We don't really know what happens in the future. And I think it's also, it's, when you have a book, it's also an object. And if you can look it, like down the rabbit hole, you can see like a book will last you longer than maybe a random EEPUB or PDF file on your hard drive. I know it's a choice, a strategic choice. We also price-wise, we're trying to keep it reasonable because we're not really into the we like books but we don't want to be like some kind of super expensive coffee table book that only few selected people can buy so we just, that i think was the decision behind it interesting we actually also got the question quite often why we didn't release the book on a floppy good and point actually. this also has to do with accessibility <laughs> i would say we're not against publishing the book on a floppy, but yeah, we think that, yeah, we actually do really want people to read this and not it only being some sort of art project that ends up on a shelf somewhere or is only presented during an exhibition. It is actually readable. Yeah, paper is a good medium to read things on. Maybe the best one still. You could do it like Thomas said. You could make an, a PDF version and then you zip it and multi-span it across 50 discs. <laughs> and then you have people buying buying USB floppy drives and copying all the multi-span zip files on a hard disk to actually being able to distract it and hope that none of those 50 discs is actually unreadable, which would destroy the whole archive. Like you had a, I don't remember the name of it. I don't know there was a sloppy book that if you open and read the book, it would self-destruct after a time. So it's like a thing, but I think concept wise, it was not something we were like, kind of like, it's hard enough to explain people that sometimes a floppy disk is still a thing. And then ask, and then they, they have, yeah, you can get a USB floppy drive, you put it in even modern Mac, and then it still pops up with a floppy disk icon. Like, it's like for people outside the realm of the floppy scene, even making it highly, saying that it's on a floppy disk, in the, nobody would really exit it. It would be a fun thing and like interesting to make conceptually, but I think it would be a bit difficult to like ask that for a lot of people. It's like, a, I think the whole thing or the book was more, it's a bit like the, the thing that maybe get people interested in it. And then they maybe go on and look into like scene world or, floppy mags and floppy publishing it's like the entry level drug in a way of floppy disk culture hmm. for other people because we interact with our kind of audience it's everything from like people who does phd in university and research and then there's like people who into like vintage retro gaming 
and everyone in between and beyond. So there's not scenes to necessarily interact with each other that much on a daily basis. So if you cater to one scene, then you can't actually dismiss the other group. But the problem is with, as I said, uh, university publications and research and stuff. For some reason, I mean, I never studied in a university, so I don't know. But for some reason, those books are often so expensive, cost, uh, costing a couple of hundred euros, which I really never understood why it's so expensive. Yeah, I could, uh, we're not going to go into that discussion, but it's as a whole, we have certain companies that do uh, take public funded research and put it behind the paywall. That's not something we are pro against. That's actually, a lot of people do this research, they have no say in this at all, and they would highly like to publish it. And sometimes they do leak it out themselves under the table in other cases. But there's a lot of people who do writing, especially in the, the kind of media archaeology scene, they publish their own books to different publisher. And of course, like that audience says, it's, it's, it's about the publisher and what audience and what kind of language you want in the book. It's, if you read something that the electrical engineer reads and can understand pretty easy, that's not something that's really accessible easy to other people. So it's like this, you got to find a balance in language. Mm. Hey, what okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's like finding the balance and, and a lot of things, style, format, audience, language, all of this stuff. So it's a long process that's hard to explain with a few words. I see. Now I sitting see. in a garden here. I don't know what happened. Yeah, you can actually click on view and then you can click on change scene. Ah. And yeah, <laughs> and somebody clicked on change scene for every part participant. Okay. <laughs> but you can change it back yourself. But it's super interesting. We are talking for an hour about the topic of your book and the floppy disks and super awesome. So I, I really hope it sells well. I think, Thomas, you told me you have an initial amount of thousand books. If, uh, or did I remember that correctly? Well, there's the print copies, 2,000 copies. 2,000 um, was, okay. I think we originally were aiming at 1,000, but we got a lot of kind of nice feedback from uh, via some distributors who were really excited by the book. There's a demand only from what we hear online, but also actually from people in the book scene that are interested in it. You, if you want the book, you can get the book. Awesome, awesome. That that would be all for now. Right now, I guess you are just waiting for the book to be sold as much as possible and have people reading about it. Hopefully, at some point, there will be a successor of the book. Perhaps you can dig up new projects using discs. Yeah, who knows where this so what happens after this book with feedback from people. They're certainly out there, those projects. Awesome, awesome. Thanks a lot for taking the time. I'm very happy that we got you all together for this interview. Wish you a good evening and a good night and keep yes. in touch. Yes. Bye bye. Thank you very much. See you. Bye. Thanks Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.